Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sight in the Tone, an ER retrospective, the show where we do a chronological breakdown of every episode of our favorite TV medical drama. My name is Elizabeth, and with me today, as always, are Lauren. Greetings. And Daniel. Hey. Today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 21, which is titled House of Cards. The episode aired on April 6, 1995. Lauren, what was going on this week 25 years ago? Well... MLB owners and players agree to a deal that ends the 232-day-long strike, which resulted in the cancellation of the 1994 World Series. Yikes. For some reason, I feel like I remember this. Was there another basketball strike when I was a little bit older? Uh, that's that's yes, baseball there, yes. dear. Fuck. <laughs> no, there was. There was. No, she's right, though. There was. There was a There was a basketball lockout in 1999. But I meant so baseball, that's... Daniel. I can't talk. We podcast but, uh, and I can't I talk. Uh, I mean, there was a near miss strike in 2002. Yeah. That they, might be what I'm thinking. They of. were threatening to strike and it looked like it was going to happen. And then at the last minute it was called off. So, Oh, fuck it. We'll do it live. Okay. Um, and then. Oh, wait. I actually, actually, fun fact about this strike. This is actually the strike, the baseball strike that ended Michael Jordan's short-lived baseball career. It wasn't that's the best. true. Was he was he a bad baseball player? Yep. So he was a terrible baseball player, and they offered him a chance to cross the picket line as a way to drum up attendance uh, when they were considering using scab players, and he was like, "No, fuck you! I'm in a union. Piss off!" Oof. So he went back to basketball. Okay. WrestleMania 11 takes place, headlined by NFL player Lawrence Taylor taking on and defeating Bam Bam Bigelow. The '90s were a hell of a time. <laughs> I know nothing about wrestling, but cool. This was not not one of the better WrestleManias, even of that era. All right, good to know. Take a <laughs> Bow by Madonna continues its run at number one on the music charts, and Tommy Boy debuts at number one in the box office. God, I fucking love that movie. It's so good. Every time I try on a coat that doesn't fit, I have to do the little <laughs> spin in the dressing room and go, Fat man in a tiny jacket. It's fat guy in a little, little coat. coat. I love it. And in my head, that's what I think every time I fit, I try on something that doesn't fit. And it makes it a little more okay. So See, thank you, Chris Farley. And also my brother, whenever he would have to wake me up in the morning for whatever reason during when I during the later 90s, he would always go, housekeeping, you want French kiss? <laughs> it's the only movie that's ever uh, successfully made David Spade likable, in my opinion. Like it's the- Emperor's New Groove, thank you very much. I get, but that's voice. That to me, that doesn't count. Like I'm talking live action, where I have to look at his Weasley little face. You weren't a fan of Joe Dirt, no. Or no. that child star one that he did. Oh, uh, Dickie Roberts, no. Yeah. Or Black Sheep, also with Chris Farley. Nah, it's Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy or bust. All right. So getting into this week's episode, we have finally hit the mountaintop of season one and maybe maybe of the show entirely i'm not sure if I, I haven't looked ahead to see if these numbers grow i'm sure they do at least somewhat but 35.3 million people watched this week's episode which is just a mind-blowing number this is the high water mark for season one it, it's going to decline from here as we head towards the season finale but don't don't cry for them, Argentina. It's not going to go that low. This week's episode is directed by Fred Gerber and written by Tracy Stern, both first-timers um, for 
ER to this point. Um, Fred Gerber had direct it has directing credits in other series such as X Files, Law and Order, and House. And Tracy Stern would be a writer on ER for the first couple of seasons before jumping over to Law and Order SVU and Desperate Housewives, among other things. I just want to say, after rewatching all of this, I'm going to want to go back and examine House and see how they handle their traumas and like their yeah. their emergency situations. I feel like it'd be, make for an interesting comparison. Maybe on one of our bonus episodes, I'll take 15 minutes and do that because a I want to watch House again. B now that we're going to have so so much of this documented as a footnote, it'll be interesting to compare. So this episode opens to Doug in bed with Diane Leeds. Nice and sleepy and innocent and snuggly and still no word of Linda. Do we ever <laughs> hear what happens to Linda? Not Lydia, as I misspoke last episode. <clears throat> Linda. We find out he has slept through his alarm. He doesn't seem all that perturbed about this. And Diane says, you have to sneak out before Jake wakes up. So clearly they haven't told him yet. But first... George Clooney demands more smoochies. And Diane says this really odd line that's just like, I think it's just gross 90s terminology to me, where she's like, oh, come on, you're going to get me started. <laughs> like, ugh. Contain your thirst, woman. And then, so Doug's like, okay, fine. He gets up, grabs his clothes. He's walking down the hall to go quick use the restroom. And he walks in on his child friend Jake peeing. And Jake just calmly says, two nights in a row, huh? And Doug's like, uh, uh, and starts to back out and, like, keep getting dressed. And Jake's like, didn't you need the bathroom? Doug goes, no, there's one at work. And he goes to open the door and Jake goes, I'll lock it. You forgot to lock it yesterday. And then Doug walks out of the apartment with his belt undone and fly down, much to the neighbor lady's judgment. Has to take the walk of shame. Yep. So... Our precocious child friend, Jake, does not seem perturbed about this at all. No, this is exactly what he wanted. But still, ugh, no child should be that aware of his mother's comings and goings. <laughs> comings and goings. I will leave my statement. Started. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we check in on Benton, Carter, and Chen for the first time this episode. And they are following Benton around as he just barks orders at them says he's getting ready to start their sub-eye placements that's bred all this awful competition between the two of them. Uh, he says he wants their procedure books by the end of the day, and Deb is pissed because originally they are supposed to have another week and uh, thinks Carter has the unfair advantage because he's been here longer. And, uh, yeah, the unpleasant competition streak that we kind of talked about at the beginning of last week's episode that is gonna kind of bear fruit and come full circle in this episode in a really really awful way i can't wait so mark is working with his first patient a gentleman with stomach pain in the lower right quadrant so mark believes it's appendicitis but orders a cbc and a few other tests to confirm our new best friend dr swift walks up and wants to reevaluate Mark's work and says, just, you know, cancel the tests. We don't need them. Uh, he is convinced it's just gas, not appendicitis. And he does this in front of the patient. He, co he completely contradicts Mark right in front of the patient and then just walks away. And Mark is so embarrassed. And you can tell he is so pissed off by this line of behavior. Because he's just been completely outdone in front of the patient, in front of, I think, Lydia and I think Halei. 
Yeah, I think so. It's not a not a great look, just in general. Like, don't don't show people up. And we actually had um, an interesting note that somebody shared with us after this week's most recent episode came out about why Michael Ironside did not stay on as a longer running cast member. And this was from Angela G on Twitter. Thank you again. This is not the first time you've helped us out, and I hope it won't be the last. But she said, Michael Ironside was meant to be a long-term member of the cast, but he was offered the lead role on another show. So he didn't come back until seasons later because he was working on that. That's a bummer. I think I would have liked to have seen how that character could have developed and how that, you know, relationship between him. Because it's clear that he was supposed to play a significant role in Mark's character development. And I would have liked to have seen that uh, kind of get to get to come full circle. And uh, I think I've gained a whole new appreciation for his character uh, going back and watching it this time. He was a character I really didn't like very much when I watched it the first time. And I've really I've, I've enjoyed having him around now. I think it might be because the first time you're watching, you're just rooting for our team and like you want Mark to be number one and this mm-hmm. guy comes in and suddenly he's a he seems like a foil for Mark. And so, of course, you're going to be like, who is this asshole? It's true. But, it's the, but, the tag effect. Right. But rewatching with this more critical eye and examining the characters as a whole, not just through a microscope, I think it really helps us be able to kind of look at the full picture and be like, oh, you know, he's not so bad. Yeah, and what Dr. Swift does to Mark is something something of a trope as we go along throughout the series. Lots of new doctors will come in and be like, hey, I'm the best. Here, you're all wrong. Why are you doing it this way? Like, a lot of different people come in throughout the years, different various longer-term or longer-term guest stars. The Tooch! Yeah, <laughs> and and Alan Alda, and John Leguizamo, and all those other fine folks who show up along the way. But they'll generally, that's how they make their entrances. Ha you're doing it wrong, core cast member. Suck it. <laughs> those exact words. Exactly. Just imagine Alan Alda saying exactly those words. I'm here for it. But then after that, we get our first audio clip of the episode. Ben and Jackie are talking. Uh, it's time for Mama Benton whose name, first name we discovered is May, according to IMDb. I don't believe it's ever mentioned on the actual show, to my knowledge, but her she is credited as May Benton. Short for Mama. Exactly. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. We're still going to call her Mama Benton, but because I love that name. But she's getting out of the hospital day, finally. Yay? Yay. <laughs> and they're about to take her to a nursing home, but... Ben wants to be the one to tell her, so let's listen in. You'll be there to get her moved this afternoon? I'll be there. I'll tell her she's going to the home, but I need you to back me up here. Listen, Jackie. I, uh... I want to be the one to tell her. Please, Jackie. Hey, Ma. Hey, Ma. How you feeling? Hmm? I'm leaving today. I've been trying to make my hair up the way Daddy liked it. Could you help me, honey? Ma. Hmm? Uh, Jackie and I and the doctors 
think you need more care than we can give you. You need to have someone around all the time to make sure that you're okay. We found this great place, um, the Melville home. We'll make it just as nice as your house, Mama. Yeah. Jackie's gonna make you curtains. Yellow stripes, Mama, your favorite. Do I have to go, Peter? <gasps> You okay over there, Daniel? That sound you hear is the sound of everyone's collective heart breaking. Including mine. Mm. Just... I love this actress that plays Mama Benton. I forget her name off the top of my head, but... Ugh. Just, yeah. ugh. This, this is her time to shine. The feels. Bea Richards, that's the... Uh... Oh, that's right. I remember we talked about this when she first came on. Yeah. And we weren't sure if it was B or Bay or... Yeah, I think I've just decided it's Bea. I'm... I'm going to go with that. I feel strongly about that. Okay. <laughs> White man with opinions. We're not going to try and argue with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we will come back to them a little later when she's actually, for another heartbreaking scene, when she's actually being taken out to the ambulance to be transported. When she goes fully catatonic and completely breaks what remains of our hearts. Mm-hmm. No, this is one of the things that I was um, maybe morbidly grateful for when my father was diagnosed and started getting sick. I was out of town when it happened, and so all of those decisions and moving him were kind of out of my hands, and I did not have to be a part of that conversation with him, explaining why he was being put where he was. And he, for the most part, when we'd go visit him after he was, you know, settled in, he usually was pretty good, but I would not want it to have been, I think it was my aunt and uncle that had to kind of help him get settled, but yeah, I can't even imagine how hard this would have been to explain to a parent that, you know, yeah. hey, your children don't think you're capable of taking care of yourself anymore, and you're beyond their care. Like, mm. how can that make you feel as a parent where your entire life, once your children are born, is providing for them and working for them to have a better life to all of a sudden be like, you're out of our capacity. We're going to do the best we can for you, but we can't do it. Mm. Mm. So, so awful, but also so good, too. I mean, Benton is just probably some of his best work thus far in just a reaction to yeah the the way he just you know is so clearly struggling with that moment is it's very very good it's definitely a growing moment for him he's finally done fighting it mm -hmm. he's finally done being in denial and he's finally ready to help his mom get the care that she needs yeah hmm but like Lizzie said, we'll come back to that uh, throughout the episode. Um, for now, we cut over to Susan and Mark having a little chat about uh, Swift calling Mark out in front of the patient. And Susan, being the good friend that she is, takes Mark's side, says that Swift is out of line to do that. But Mark is also agreeing that they ordered too many tests. And, you know, he's he's got sort of this, like, defeatist attitude about it where he thinks that, you know, Swift has already made up his mind about Mark and that he's no longer a candidate for the attending position that Morgan Stern promised him. And, you know, this is a... We find Mark in a really delicate 
place at the beginning of this episode. Like he is still clearly uh, reeling from the events of a couple episodes ago. Um, I, I believe there's a, a line spoken at some point in this episode, or it might have been last week's, that the events of the incident with the pregnant woman that was several weeks ago now so we're getting to the point where like he has started to move past it and try to kind of pick the pieces up and and carry on but he's still in a very kind of like gun shy position where he's afraid to make another mistake and he's afraid to he's questioning everything about his own abilities and we see that you know kind of play out a little bit later in this episode but it's just a really, it's a different kind of mark than we've seen to this point here in this early part of the episode. For sure. And yeah, I believe it was last episode where he says, I still see them. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that definitely was. Yeah. And then a little bit later this episode, that gun shy moment definitely comes into play for sure with him. But from here, after Susan is being a good friend and supportive of Mark during his delicate time, we move over to our first big trauma of the episode with Doug. And... This gentleman that comes in with the EMTs took a 20-foot fall while working on something for the electric company. Carter gets to do his first central line. I believe it's Susan walking him through it, right? I yeah. think so. Okay, and then Deb walks in and, is, and hands the x-rays over and is like, you're doing a central line? And she's just incredulous about this. And... Uh, I noticed, and this is one of those pedantic things that you two are both going to yell at me about, but I'm going to bring it up. What, when she brings the x-rays in, there's already a board full of films on the um, rack behind them, and they're, they look like head CTs and some other x-rays and things. And if they're another patient's images, they should have been put back in records by now. And it doesn't seem like he's been there long enough for x-rays or other imaging since we just saw him get wheeled in. So that was just one of those things where I know they probably did it just to make everything look more medical. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, guys, if you're going to have somebody bring in the x-rays, maybe don't have images on the, maybe don't have films on the board. I don't think that's pedantic at all. I think that's that's actually a really good point. Like, it's sort of a, like you said, it's it's one of those things that in passing, you're like, oh yeah, it's just we just want medical stuff in the room. But if you stop and think about it for longer than five seconds, you're like, that doesn't really make sense. And I guess you could say that, you know, maybe it depends on how quickly they turned the room over from the last patient and and the x-rays were just the last thing they were thinking about because they were cleaning up, you know, a gurney or blood or whatever. Um, But yeah, no, I think that's an interesting little wrinkle or interesting little detail that might have otherwise been glossed over. Yeah. So I'm going to keep an eye out from for that from now on because I know we've seen it in the past like when they've coded a patient and the body is still in the room sometimes the films will still be up but I think if you're using an active trauma room maybe there should be a blank thing because otherwise nurses have to waste time taking those other ones down so you can put up the fresh ones just a thought they send this gentleman up to the OR and I think this is the last we see of him yeah, it is. I don't it think is. he's a through line patient. He's not. But what is a through line is Dougie. We stay with Doug <laughs> um, as he is working on a little girl uh, who has kind of like flu-like symptoms. She's nauseous and dizzy. She's here with her mom. They think it's a flu bug, but he wants to check her heart rate on a monitor. So he orders uh, orders them to kind of get her set up for the heart test, which makes the mother very nervous because she's uh, concerned about the cost of all these tests and... Doug is like, well, 
you have insurance, don't you? And she's like, nah, dog. And he's, you know, in kind of a stark contrast to when he browbeats the uh, black mom from a few episodes ago, he's like, we'll work something out. Kind of not great, but, you know, our two actresses in this episode or in this interaction, this scene, uh, you've got mom played by uh, Kathleen Dennehy and uh, little girl who I can't remember if we get in this scene or if it's a later scene we find out her name is Jeanette uh but uh, she's played by an actress named Ashley either Malinger or Malinger I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name mom nothing notable to speak of in her filmography which is kind of a theme of this episode we've got a lot of like very very forgettable bit players um and the daughter the only thing that she's ever been in that I thought I'd ever even heard of was the Tony Danza show which I can only imagine is terrible Ugh. Then we cut over to Mark. He's with a patient who has been coughing persistently for two weeks. Uh, she says it hasn't been so bad and tries to leave and tries to do the like, oh, I'm feeling a lot better. Oh, it's whatever it is. It's, it is what it is. But Mark thinks it might be tuberculosis, which is kind of a big deal for those who may not be aware. Highly, 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 highly infectious. You know, we find out that she doesn't really work, uh, but her husband does with a green card, so we're kind of questioning whether or not she might be here uh, legally, which is a whole other leftist concept that I can rant about for <laughs> for weeks and weeks and weeks. But Humans are neither legal nor illegal. Exactly. <clears throat> but all that to say, she stays at home with the kids for the most part. And as soon as Mark brings up tuberculosis or TB, Carter just starts covering his nose with a Kleenex to protect himself. <laughs> In another beautiful Baby Carter. just chef's kiss version, uh, chef's kiss uh, phys- level of physical acting from Noah Wiley. God, I love him. <laughs> he just does it so subtly, too, that if you weren't really paying attention, you'd just think maybe he was blowing his nose. Right, yeah. He's not drawing attention to himself, but it, yeah, it, it just works. Yeah, but Mark thinks that she doesn't want to be put in the system just because she might be an illegal immigrant. And, you know, she... He eventually is convinces her to be like, okay, like at least let us do something and ask Lydia to put her in. Uh, her name is Ms. Salazar. We missed that earlier. Put Ms. Salazar in an isolation room. And she's another one of our uh, sort of who's who of nobodies, I guess. Uh, she's an actress by the name of Isabella Martinez Wall, who's done a lot of extra roles or extra bits in a lot of different things but nothing that you've ever heard of so all right cool yeah the first time we watched this scene i thought i heard mark say she's an illegal and i was about to be so mad again from a grammar standpoint and i made i made us rewind it and rewatch to make sure that i was wrong and it turns out he says that she's just illegal i just heard him wrong so good on mark i mean you're off the hook mark not great but better than calling somebody an illegal. So we then go over to an old woman on a gurney arguing with another older woman. Um, They were in a motor vehicle accident. They're sisters and they're just bickering. Like I didn't bother to get any of the specifics for what they're writing because it's just it's just sassy older woman bickering. Like I I'm sure there were some choice lines in there, but it was just they were going a mile a minute and I could not just like their car, I could not keep up with them <laughs> enough to get some of their pointed things. 
Yeah, these are two more. These ones actually are a little, little bit more interesting. Um, Sari, Sari or Sari, I can't remember how they pronounced it. Um, but Sari and Shirley are the sisters here. Sari is played by an actress named Junie Ellis, who had a lot of old timey credits uh, to her name. Um, most notably, to me anyway, was um, she was in a few different episodes of the original run of Twilight Zone, which I thought was really cool that somebody who was like acting in twilight zone was in er i thought that was pretty cool she unfortunately both of these ladies have since passed away but uh junie passed away in 1997 uh and then shirley's played by an actress named jane cecil who um her most kind of significant bit roles uh came in law and order um and she left us in 2015 and then we go back over to uh, Doug's little girl, who uh, unfortunately is crashing. Uh, Mom comes running down the hall, yelling for help. Um, they jump back in, can't feel a pulse, says Lydia. And that's after uh, Doug has... I'm, I'm not, I should have asked Nurse Jen what the purpose of her blowing... Having the child blow on her thumb like she was blowing up a balloon. I'm not sure what the purpose of that was medically, given what he was doing. But... Yeah, little Jeanette's not doing so hot. So we'll see where that goes. But after that, we go back over to... I I googled it. Yeah. Um, It is apparently to calm your heart rate. Oh, interesting. It's... Hold on. It's called the Valsalva Maneuver. Oh, I know the Valsalva Maneuver, but I've never heard it... I've never seen it applied in that way or for that purpose it's interesting i yeah it says performed by moderately forceful attempted exhalation against a closed airway usually done by closing one's mouth pinching pinching one's nose shut while expelling air as if blowing up a balloon yeah we used we would teach or or we were we wouldn't necessarily teach but we were aware of the valsalva maneuver in the personal training world um as it's a trick that gets used or a technique that gets used in um powerlifting so if you're trying if you're trying to lift insanely heavy amounts of weight um sometimes they will teach you to do a valsalva maneuver to cause your abdominal muscles to contract harder and give you more of a base of support to pull from and unfortunately it can lead to things like burst blood vessels so you'll see power lifters who like get bloody noses or uh i've even seen it where people have shot blood out of their eye sockets in ah. yeah it's not great it's not something that you should really make a habit out of doing but that's interesting that there's that little bit of crossover here so there you go all right well with that hor- horrifying image out of the way <laughs> was that really necessary you're welcome you're marrying me what's that what's next uh so after that horrifying imagery we go back over to our older ladies the one the one woman who's not on the gurney is reading off a vision chart and very confidently but just after she finishes reciting off all the letters carol just looks at her and like just like like that was completely wrong like not even like nice try or anything they're like no you're fucking wrong dude like uh she's like oh wait let me put on my glasses and these things are like just like the size of like coke bottles like (laughs) Like these, if you look up Coke bottle glasses in the dictionary, these would be there. Yeah, and tries again, and she's still completely wrong. And Susan's like, okay, we should get a CAT scan of her head, because she also has a headache. And Carol just 
happens to notice another pair of glasses sitting around and she's like hey try these and the woman puts them on and is like oh that's much better and she looks at susan and just very very matter of factly says i thought you'd be older yeah so then we go over to carter who is fumbling with a bunch of supplies because he'd been asked to go and grab something for someone i don't remember exactly who but um Hale comes by and says someone has come in for a pelvic exam and asking for Carter specifically. And at the time I said, I wonder who it'll be. My bet is, is Liz, his his little tryst from our first couple episodes. Mm, don't you put that evil on me. Is this where he gives the woman the water? It's around here, yeah. Okay, so while he's looking for the supplies, this woman is like, Dr. Doctor, please, I'm so thirsty. Could you please fetch me some water? And he's like, yeah, sure. And he go, he gets it for her. I think he gets it off screen, but it's implied he gets her a drink of water. Oh, this no. Will he, come... Yeah, it is here. It is here. Because okay. as soon as he finds out he's going off to do a pelvic, he hands her the cup of water and the pitcher. Like, he's, yep. so, he's so excited to go do it that he's just like, yeah, here you go. And just hands yeah. her the pitcher of water. Yep. Doesn't check her chart or anything. Just hands it to her. This will bite him in the ass later. And then we go back to Doug, who is quick chatting with Jeanette's mom and just lets her know that Jeanette has a heart condition and needs to be admitted to cardiology. We had found out earlier that the mom does not have insurance. And so someone from social services is going to come down and help her apply for Medicaid so they can get uh, Jeanette the care that she needs. Um, And then after that, we have Mark and Susan just sort of walking down the hallway talking about, you know, what they want for lunch. And... Uh, Dr. Swift, Wild Willie, wants uh, Mark to go see a woman in three uh, who is uh, pregnant with stomach cramps and frequent urination. Hmm. Is this ringing some bells here, folks? Yeah, so Mark basically takes one look at the chart and the patient. like, hey, Susan, can you do this for me? Like, no, please, please do it for me. And just pushes it off on her because someone's got, you know, Someone had a little bit of a traumatic experience going on there, so natural for him to be a bit gun shy with around pregnant people going forward here for a little bit. Yep. So then we go back and check in with Carter's pelvic exam, and for the second episode in a row, uh, Carter has. Well, I guess this woman's not pregnant yet, but uh, we've got another crazy, crazy woman who is pregnant or hopes to be pregnant, just like last week's episode. We do not have, we have never seen this woman before and don't know who she is, and neither does Carter. But we find out that she was recommended to him uh, by her friend Barbara, who apparently he saw some time ago in the ER in a, in a scene we didn't see. Says that she gives up the game, says she doesn't really have cramps, um, but that Barbara got pregnant a week after Carter examined her after they had been trying forever. So she thinks this is the way to do it. Like, some, like, I guess he's like good luck or something. Is got the, the magic touch? He's got the magic touch, yeah. Okay. Uh, so this crazy lady is under the impression that she's gonna get pregnant if Carter examines her. Cool. Yikes. Yeah. So this, this character, who is honestly one of the more. I think it's between her and the um, the old ladies for, like, the most fun, like, go-nowhere characters we have in this episode. I, I would say she's at least on par with the old ladies, um, but she's played by an actress named Susan Merson, who at least had kind of an interesting film background. Um, she was in such trash as T3. <laughs> uh, I don't even remember what the 
I, I keep wanting to say Revenge of the Fallen, but that's not it. That's uh, Transformers. Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Rise Thank of the Machines. Much. And it's not as bad as everyone says it was. Fight me. All right. Uh, and I sense a TPC episode. <laughs> uh, Phenomenon is what another one she's in. Talk about trash. And uh, Tootsie. So very eclectic background for Miss Merson. Uh, but that's all we see of her. We don't follow up with her again. Um, and then we have a little quick audio clip for you. It's Dr. Swift and Mark just talking about the pregnant woman and setting up the rest of Mark's storyline for the episode. Dr. Green. Your name's on the board for that pregnant woman. Why is Dr. Lewis with her? I gave it to her. I see. I understand you lost a mother during delivery a couple of weeks ago. Jody O'Brien, preeclampsia, she bled out. I'd like you to present it at the case conference today. Today? Two o'clock. Well, I need time to prepare. No, you don't. You know what happened. Oof. He knows this has been eating at Mark. And that Mark has gone over every fucking detail in his head over and over again. Yeah, he really is, I mean, in his own twisted sort of way, like, he really is trying to help him. Like, he's trying to help him get past this and get over it, but... Like you said, you're sort of conditioned not to like him, so it's it comes off as him just sort of torturing him for the sake of it. Yeah, let's yeah, that's the way to get past a traumatic patient is to, you know, just give him a pl- public flogging about everything he did wrong. I think he's more thinking it'll be cathartic to talk about it. Yeah, that's like, like a, it's, a, it's clumsy. It. It's it's clumsy and it's uh old. It's an old way of thinking, but I think his intentions are good ultimately. Yeah. I don't know, I just really want to like Dr. Swift, so I'm willing to be ap- apologetic for any shit he f- fucks up, because I want more Michael Ironside. But then Mark goes to check on Miss Salazar, and she definitively does have TB, and he's like, you need to bring your whole family in. She's like, no, I have to go home. Like, I have to go home and take care of the kids. My daughter's sick. He goes, no, you need to call your family and get them here. You cannot go home. You will infect everybody that you come in contact with. And he's like screaming at her about this. Like, no, you can't leave. Get your family here. Like, just talking down to her and just super stressed. Clearly not happy about the news he just got. And Susan pops in and pulls him out. And she's like, how can you expect her to trust you if you're screaming at her? And Mark's like, forget it. If she leaves, she leaves. Not my problem. And walks away. So Mark's doing great. Yeah, Mark's having a great day. All right, so here's the here's the highlight of the episode right here. <laughs> Doug calls Carter over to do a suprapubic tap on a baby, which sounds just delightful. Uh, and we, we have a, a very dehydrated baby uh, with a temp of uh, 102. Uh, and we get a nice uh, giant tight shot of his uh, bare genitals. Um, we got baby dick and balls in this episode. Just right there, front and center. Um, what the fuck? Network television. Like, this is not This is not also, like, a, uh, a, a byproduct of us watching this 25 years later and having 60-inch televisions and HD everything. Like... There's a close-up, okay? Like, there's, like, two shots. Like, very, like, back to... There's a they're very... Someone had a very concerted effort that we were going to see baby dick and balls in this episode, and I don't understand why. 
I don't know why that was important to the story, but you know, and then two seconds later, baby pees all over Carter. Cool. It's all over. The whole, this whole scene, super weird. I don't, I like, I just don't know why we had to frame it that way, but okay. Like, I feel like we could have easily had the, you know, the gag. Cause that's the whole thing is setting up is just so this baby could pee all over Carter. And I don't know why we needed to like establish that this baby was equipped before we I, did that. I love that Doug's like, okay, not too much pressure. And Carter's like, how will I know if it's too much pressure? And as he's asking, this baby just unloads on him. And he's like, yeah, that was probably too hard. <laughs> Carter, <or> Doug's just like, <laughs> like that. Mm. Um, and speaking of weird ass patients, we have Susan <laughs> going over to check on a woman. Oh, uh, yeah. Again, just a one scene patient, but. The woman, her husband thinks she is par- has paranoid psychosis with highly detailed delusions. <laughs> and, you know, her and Susan are talking. She seems very normal. You know, she's like, Susan's like, okay, do you think anyone's following you? She was like, can't be too careful on these streets. It's, ru- it's getting really rough out yeah. there. Do you think you're in danger? Yeah. Do you, yeah. And she's answering all these things very calmly, very matter-of-factly. <laughs> and I forget what the exact question is, but... She says, like, oh. I think it's, um, I think it's, oh, gosh, what is it? It's something about, like, do you have any medications or, like. Oh, yeah. She, yeah. yeah. So, and then, and we, she's very calm and very, very collected about everything until she gets the question of, whoa, what medication, uh, Susan asks, what, what, what medications are you on? And she's like, oh, I have them right here. Or the list or something. Yeah, I have, I have. Yeah, and goes into this, roots around this giant-ass purse, starts, you know, has a wallet, has a little stuff, has some mace. Brass knuckles. Then she starts pulling out some brass knuckles and a revolver. And, and ammo clips. Yeah, and... And I was I was wrong. It's d- the name of her psychiatrist. That's what it was. It wasn't medicine. She says, are you currently seeing anybody about this? Can I get the name of your psychiatrist? And the woman's like, yeah, I have his card right here. Oh, yeah. Giant gun. Giant yeah. gun. And lots of ammo. And which Susan's just like, the fuck? And this woman's so matter of fact and polite about it. Like, yeah. non-threatening. Yeah. yeah. Susan's like, can we take those to security while, you, while you're here? She's like, oh, yeah, of course. I don't mind at all. And then with a, she's like, I still got my Beretta. And then just whips it out. In of front her of, waistband. Yeah, off her waistband. <laughs> just whips out a Christ. pistol. What the fuck? <laughs> as for gun control as I am, I'd feel much safer if we had a bunch of little ladies like this on the streets. Oh, I would. Yeah, I would. I would not, actually. <laughs> yeah, especially in a diverse city like Chicago. Okay, fair. I don't need her paranoid ass running around armed to the teeth. Okay, but if she was sane and just adorable and polite like this. Then she wouldn't have the, all that weaponry okay fine <laughs> anyway this delightful peach of a woman uh is played by an actress named peggy pope whose most m- most notable entry on her imdb was that she was in the dolly parton vehicle nine to five which is a great movie and you should go watch it okay so from there we go back over to peter and he is with Jeannie boulet and mama benton waiting for the ambulance to transfer mama benton to the nursing home and, you know, he's trying to make her feel better, just talking to her about stuff. And Jeannie says, oh, she's been quiet and not talking to anyone because, you know, she's really upset about being moved. 
So Jeannie is going to go with her to the home to help get her settled, and Peter has to go to surgery, but he he says he'll stop by and help, like, check on her and get her all turned in for the night later. And what ambulance area is that? Because I noticed it's right by a main hospital sign, and I don't think we ever see either of those areas again. No. No. I don't think so either. Uh, and this is definitely filmed in Los Angeles because I, just a, on the random IMDb fun facts... The company of the ambulance that they load Mama Benton into is a California-based company. So this has to be some hospital that they shot out in L.A. Yeah, it, it makes sense because it's even different than the um, ambulance bay that we've seen Mark and, and uh, Doug hanging out in the last couple episodes. And there can only be so many ambulance bays in one hospital, especially in a downtown urban hospital. Plus, it it doesn't look downtown at all. Like, there's lots of wide open space around it. Like, it does not look like it's a downtown area at any way. Yeah, I want to start noting when we get to our regular use of our normal ambulance bay. Soon. Soon. And again, March and my ever-expanding quest to get every piece of Doug and Mark audio that I possibly <laughs> can. We have Doug talking to Mark about presenting at the conference about the O'Briens. So let's give that a listen. Hey. It's a conference? Yeah. You nervous? Oh, no. I love an inquisition. <laughs> you do fine. Are you kidding? You're gonna be out for blood. Yeah, we've all been there. Oh? Well, how many young mothers you killed, Doug? Mark, listen. Hey. Sorry I can't be there with you today, but you're gonna do okay. So, good luck. So Mark's doing great. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Move along. All is well. Yeah, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Ugh, when even Doug can't get through to him, you know that he's going through some stuff. But I love that in this episode we see both Doug and Susan trying to be there for him and have his back. So then we see Mark going up to the conference area where he thought the meeting was going to be. And this woman is, like, picking up pencils and um, notepads. And he's like, oh, wasn't there supposed to be a conference here? She goes, oh, yeah, they moved it to, f- to the sixth floor. And he goes, okay, what room? She goes, the auditorium. Uh, Jeez. what? <laughs> Big crowd for this one. So Mark looks horrified. And we cut over to Benton yelling at Carter. <laughs> As you do. At the nurse's station. Like you do. It's a normal Tuesday. The woman that Carter gave that water to was NPO, which means no food or fluids before surgery, because she was scheduled to have, um, I believe, an appendectomy? No, like a, like some non-super, non-super emergency surgery, but like necessary. Yeah, some, something on- Like a gallbladder or something Something like, like that. a gallbladder or pancreas or something, but, yeah. and he's like, well, she can't have surgery now. So, go fuck yourself, Carter. Um, (laughs) Deb now gets to scrub in on a small bowel operation as Benton's way of punishing Carter that he doesn't get to go. Only Deb gets to go. And then Jerry's just in the back watching this whole thing with judging eyes. Just like, Carter, you dumbass. Like, you don't... Like, check... And I like that Benton brings up, did you check her chart before you gave her water? (laughs) It was right there. NPO. He was like, no... Was too excited to go to a pelvic. He didn't actually say that, but like <laughs> Carter was too excited to go get to practice. Um, I just wanted to see a vagina. <laughs> was, I was trying not to put it like that, but you know, baby Carter. Um, but no, he was just he was 
too excited that he was specifically requested for a procedure and didn't think anything of it. He wasn't practicing his critical thinking skills. And it's cost him a procedure. So Deb's excited because she gets another one for her book. All right. And now it's conference time. So we have Mark and Dr. Swift uh, walking up to the room. Uh, and once they get in there, there's about at, we, at least 50 people in that in the auditorium. So this clip is a little long, but it's the whole thing and it's really good. You know the diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia? Blood pressure greater than 140 over 90, persistent proteinuria, and edema. She had hypertension, proteinuria. Which I attributed to a urinary tract infection, and her pressure was high on only one occasion. You should have taken it again in six hours. My index of suspicion should have been higher. She seized in the parking lot. I treated her seizure aggressively with magnesium sulfate and Ativan. Have you had a chance to review the ultrasound findings? I missed the placental abruption. Did you know what you were looking for? The AFI and biophysical profile were excellent. There was a normal fundal plate. Yet she abrupted. I had no clinical reason to be suspicious. There was no vaginal bleeding, shock, abdominal pain, or fetal distress. What are the criteria for operative vaginal delivery? Mainly a favorable fetal lie and a small baby under 4,000 grams. The baby was 9 pounds 3 ounces. It's macrosomia. I used the Leopold maneuver and fundal height to estimate baby weight and size. I was off. What risks do you run using forceps on a macrosomic baby? A 23% chance of shoulder dystocia. Which happens. Yes. What qualifies you to manage high-risk OB in an ER? We're not here to question Dr. Green's training. Stick to the case. Why a C-section in an ER? The baby was hypoxic and bradycardic. Had to do it in minutes or we ran the risk of brain damage. How many crash C-sections have you done? I've scrubbed in on several. Oh, and that qualify you? I give Dr. Green credit for crashing her when he did. Knowing the outcome, what would you have done differently? I should have taken her up to OB myself immediately. Mm. I've induced before, delivered babies before. I assumed that I could handle the situation. I was wrong. Anyone else? Thank you, Dr. Green. That wasn't too bad. Only once you had a chance to talk it through, you feel fine. I'm supposed to feel some sense of relief? Is that it? I gotta get back to work. By the way, that uh, stomach flu this morning, the next time you disagree with my diagnosis, don't do it in front of the patient. Burn. Also, just what the shit? Coburn. That's the woman talking in the audio was Dr. Coburn, the chief of OB. Who never showed up during that procedure. Until the very end when it was already completely off the rails, yeah. But just, Jesus Christ. The, the whole thing, I mean, it, it really is an inquisition. I mean, it's structured the way it's shot and the way it cuts back and forth. It's structured like an interrogation and like a, like he's a witness on a stand testifying. It's just... He's he does a fantastic job in this too. Like I mean, just like the punch with which he delivers each line is really good, and like he just gets across that this is clearly something that he's both obsessed about and is like haunted by too. Like he knows all these facts from the top because he like he has gone over it in his mind over and over and over again since it happened. It's just. Whew. And you can tell that um, Swift doesn't want it to be a punishment necessarily because he stands up for Mark. Yeah, he does. He does. It's, you know, kind of too little too late with that mob. But 
And Coburn is clearly out for blood. Yeah, she's she's pissed. But we do get our kind of most, at least for me, this was my most notable, like, oh, hey, it's that guy in this uh, scene here, which I don't believe his name is ever mentioned by name, but he is credited in the credits as Dr. Munch. Um, so of the two of the two male doctors who pepper Mark with questions, this one's the slightly older one with glasses. Um, he's played by an actor named Bruce Gray, who I recognized from several different things. But if you go on his IMDb page, he has uh, an episode high uh, 175 credits to his name. Um, Whoa. Yeah, including My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Starship Troopers. And the thing that I most recognized him from was the both criminally short and criminally underrated ESPN uh, football drama from like the early 2000s, Playmakers where he played like the evil owner of the football team who was a dick. Like that was the thing I remembered him from. But then his other ER connection is that he actually appears in a later season episode as one of the Carter Foundation board members. So we're talking like way later seasons. Like once we get into the last couple seasons, he's going to show up as one of Carter's foundation board members. And uh, also continuing a theme of this episode with our bit actors, he's also no longer with us. He passed away in 2017. This is a bad one for that. Yeah, it really is. There's a lot of dead people in this episode. It's kind of like when you watch a movie and it's like, okay, is that dog still alive? Oh, yeah, I'm terrible about that. Jen gets so mad at me when I do that. I'm like, that dog's definitely dead. She's like, really? Really? (laughs) Ugh, okay, and here's my big eye roll and complaint for the episode. We cut over to Doug carrying his small child friend outside of the hospital with Diane trailing behind. If you don't know, his small child friend is Jake. I just have a beef with their friendship. Diane's like, or Jake's like, where are we going? And Doug puts him down and says, follow me. And um, add, Doug picks up Add that bike. to the list of things you can only say when you look like George Clooney. Like, yes. You can only get away um, with that. So he pulls a bike out of a rack, out of the rack and passes it to Jake and then grabs another bike that looks the exact same. He bought Jake a fucking bike. He didn't ask his his mom about it. He just did it. Diana's pissed. She's like, this is something we should have talked about first. And as she's saying that, he just goes and rides off with Jake and his BFF and is like, we'll talk about it later. Yikes. Peace. Gonna go ride bikes with your kid. Bye. Just, ugh, their whole friendship. Not okay. Then we go back and we find out just a quick little cutaway to learn that Miss Salazar has left. Oh no. TB patient on the loose. Uh, so then we jump over. We got our next trauma. We have a motor vehicle accident victim coming in. Mark and Susan are on this trauma. Um, he is very combative. He has uh, yanked out two of his IVs already. Patient's name is only, we're only told his name is Smiley, which I, I'm assuming is a nickname. He's got no ID. Uh, drunk as a skunk. Benton is consulting on it, and he thinks that the uh, patient's spleen is damaged, uh, so they're going to do a a lavage into the stomach through his nose, which he is none too happy about. He says on several occasions, don't come anywhere near me with that, or something like don't come anywhere near me with that tube or something like that. And uh, Green, just matter-of-factly, tells him, you are drunk out of your mind, and we need to take care of you, so this is our decision, not yours. And then they promptly force a tube down his nose super fun for everyone involved and again continuing our tradition of um unremarkable bit players who are now dead smiley here is played by an actor named gregory millar uh who had 
nothing other than this of note in his IMDb profile, and he passed away in 2003. All right, and then uh, after that, Deb comes back down from the OR, bragging on her two new procedures to Halle. Not one, but two. Very fancy. Uh, She asks Halle if she can get her anything, maybe some coffee or something, and Halle was very suspicious, but was like, okay, cream and sugar, and then Deb... Uh, makes the ask, hey, can you keep an eye out for any patients that come in with procedures that I haven't done yet? Here's a, here's a list of stuff I still need. And Hale, in true Hale fashion, said, well, you can start by helping Wendy put in an IV. Well, that isn't on my list. Well, it is now. <sighs> I love Hale. I don't, I just don't like what the escalation of the, um, I mean, I get that that obviously this is, you know, we're, we're going somewhere here very shortly, like minutes from now. Uh, but just overall in general, like, I just hate what the escalation of their, like, competitive thing has done to the characterization of both of them. Like, both Carter and Deb. Like, it's made them both into, like, petulant little children that are just, like, only self-interested and only, like... I don't know, like, it just, it feels inauthentic to their characters prior to the last couple episodes, like, where we've now switched from where they're both respectful, but yes, in competition, uh, uh, technically, to now they're just like, I don't know, like, I just, I feel like it does a disservice to their characters, I think, to ma- to turn them into, like, petulant children that are, like, teasing each other over getting to do different, I guess maybe it's real to, true to life, I don't know, like, I've never been to medical school. I don't know how, like, what that competitive environment does to people, but it just, it's an unfortunate side effect of this whole thing, in my opinion. Well, they can't find a vein anywhere, uh, Deb and Wendy, so, but Deb is very confident she can find one, uh, and doesn't want Wendy to go get help, but Wendy leaves to go get help. And we jump quickly back over to the trauma with uh, Mr. Smiley. Uh, They're trying to trace the source of his bleeding they think it you know they're thinking it could be internal could be uh retroperitoneal which i guess could breaking that down i'm guessing that means it would be behind his heart but in any event they're searching around trying to find where the bleeding is coming from and they find it in the form of his femoral artery um i think it's carter maybe who lifts up the little like pad on his leg or the piece of clothing or fabric that's on his leg and he just gets spurted in the face with uh blood yeah not great poor carter like if there's any artery in your body that you don't want to be the one that's bleeding it's your femoral artery because you can bleed out in a matter of minutes so this guy's in a real bad way speaking of people who are in a real bad way uh wendy goes back in to find Deb trying to find a vein and uh Deb god damn it Deb god damn it she tried to put in an unsupervised central line when she's never done one before she's like oh it's it looks so easy I can I can do it and of course the dude immediately starts to bleed out of the IV heavily (laughs) and she's like where's the where's the guide wire Where's the fucking guide wire? <laughs> the thing that you generally pull out to get to make space for the fluids that that want to go in there. And she starts panicking, rightly so. And then we quick cut over to Dr. Swift and Benton looking at a chest film on the guy. And there's just a giant wire in his chest. Like, God. Ugh. And Carter comes rushing in with 
suspenders over the scrubs. <laughs> you know, it's a look. That is with a, no white jacket. That, yeah, that is a look. Here for it. And Deb just sort of runs off and is nowhere to be found. And Carter, to be fair, says he feels kind of responsible for her behavior just because they have been so competitive these last couple episodes. And with Benton sort of cutting the competition short, she probably felt a lot of pressure to do what she could to win. And, of course, Benton is just like, over the top like what the fuck is going on here what did my students do exactly and and uh, dr swift tasks carter with trying to find her because he wants to talk to her rightfully so and just uh god damn it deb why'd you have to do this that moment when she when wendy walks in and deb's just leaning over this guy's chest and you see her pull back, and he's, she's like, okay, it's good. It's good. And then you just see the blood starting to come out. It's like, oh, it's not good. It's, it's, no, it's no bueno. So we then go over to Doug and Diane, and she's like, you bought my kid a bike. And he goes, well, he wanted it. And she just goes, there's a lot of thing he wants that he doesn't get, Doug. It's too much too soon. He doesn't know what it means. And Doug's like, neither do I. It's just, he just wanted it. It's fine. And she goes, you can't go through him to get to me. And while they're having this discussion, I didn't even notice that a, a trauma had come in in the background with a kid having been hit by a truck. Like, I was I was just so busy rolling my eyes at Doug that I didn't even realize he hops on this kid's gurney and goes to take care of him. Like, when we, when we, when it cuts back to that trauma, I asked Lizzie, I was like, when did this guy come in? So clearly I was so invested in how fucking stupid Doug is that I just didn't even catch the trauma. So this kid gets hit by a truck on his bike, and we'll find out what happens with that later. But it cuts uh, Diane and Doug's discussion short for now. Yeah. And then we have another little bit of audio for you folks. Uh, We have Mark and Susan finally talking about the... Oh, yeah, the fact that Mark's wife has left him. I can't believe you waited this long to tell me. It's not like I was going to make an announcement over the intercom. What'd you tell Rachel? I took the high road on that one. Nothing. I don't think I can bear losing her. Hardly see her as it is. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? With Jennifer, not just Rachel. She wants to be in Milwaukee. So what? Figure something out. Call her, go see her. I'm going this weekend. It's so like a guy to wait four days. Go tonight. I work tomorrow. I'll cover tomorrow. How are you? Susan doing what she can to save love. Get her friend out of trouble. Also, while they're having this chat on the counter, there's a can. It's gray and it's red and it's got a very, very recognizable font, but it says Diet Cola. So we are back on the generic, generic product, non-brand products. Candy. Candy. We'll see how this plays out in just a little bit here. So we then jump back over to check on the aforementioned uh, kid hit by truck on bike, uh, who has just the most A tier character name this to the point where this had to have been an inside joke 
with a writer or something like because they they go out of their way to mention that this kid's name is Billy Schmoo. Like we get a first name and a last name on this kid whose face we never really get a good look at and who is not credited at all in this episode. I searched high and low trying to find who played Billy Schmoo and came up completely empty. So I'm convinced that this name had to have been some sort of inside joke between a writer or somebody like because why else would we go through all this trouble to let you know this kid's name is Billy Schmoo? This absurd name. I just I don't get it. But. The schmooster was uh, hit by a truck while on his bike, thrown 20 feet into the air. Uh, he's 12 years old. They are uh, prepping him for perio- pericardiocentesis. He has unstable blood pressure, uh, and they are going to be draining fluid from around the pericardium. So it's not looking good for the schmoo. The schmoo. I just don't get it. I don't know why we went through that much trouble for such a silly name. I just don't know. I don't know. But um, from here, after after Doug drains the fluid, he walks out and Diane is sitting at the nurse's station on the phone and she asks, pepperoni or salami? He's like, for what? She's like, on your pizza, dumbass. And he's like, oh, I think he says pepperoni. I don't remember. It's it's irrelevant. But <laughs> she's like, okay, uh, Jake, order order some order some pizza. We'll be home soon. And he gets to go home with Diane and eat pizza with his best friend and his girlfriend. And Mark better watch out because he's got competition for Doug's best friend in a 10-year-old boy. Also, I have never heard before this episode of putting salami on pizza. Thank you. I was going to ask about that. I wanted to know if that was a weird Chicago thing or... I know you. I know you people love your sausage over there, but like sausage. (laughs) But that's to me that just sounds gross. Like salami on pizza just does not sound good. I'll try it. I mean, we do Italian beef on pizza. Yeah, which is fantastic. Never had it. But it's ground up. Like to me, I'm thinking salami. Like I'm thinking in the same sort of like orientation as the pepperoni. Like big, big like circles and like. Salami is yeah. just kind of a thicker, heartier meat. Like that just seems. But you could thin cut it. I guess I don't know. This is... I, I don't see any. It's not inherently offensive. I was just like, wait, what? Yeah, it's just strange. It's just to me, it's it's milder than pepperoni most of the time. Like the salami we got this week. Yeah, it was milder than the pepperoni I had. Yeah. I also think of salami as like a cold meat to like a cold cut. Yeah. So like so the idea of yes. salami on pizza as it as hot is like equally kind of off putting. Where it's I'm gonna have hot salami. I'm, I wish I hadn't said hot salami, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> gang, gang, this is making me really want pizza. From there, we go to Benton and Mama Benton sitting at the home, and they're looking at pictures together. Benton is sitting at, at the foot of Mama Benton's bed. And he's being sweet and giving her a foot rub. And she goes, do you still want to be a doctor? He goes, Ma, I am a doctor. And I love that he calls her Ma. I just I just think it's a nice little, little thing. And, and she, in a moment of just absolute wisdom, says, your talent is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. And I love when we get to see this human side of Benton when he's not just being an asshole. And then he tucks his mommy in and turns out the light. And heads home. And then we have Mark taking the romantic advice of Susan and, well, doing it in a Mark fashion. Actually <laughs> calling ahead and saying, like, Oof. hey, I want to come see you. Hey, I want to come see you and Rachel. To just calls Jennifer. And Jen says, 
you know, no, we're, I'm super busy, she's super busy, just come see them Saturday. And Mark just said, oh, okay, Saturday's fine. And slips in a, Jen, I love you. <sighs> and just dead silence. You there? Ouch. <clears throat> Ouch. See, if this was like a, I feel like if this was like a movie, he would just be going on the train up to see them. No phone, no phone call, no practice, no practical realistic phone call just be like just standing outside her just standing outside her apartment in milwaukee with a boombox john cusack style <laughs> uh like baby the, come back the, the way he just blurts it out too he's like i love you it, it's ah there's so much oof in this like buddy you are spiraling something serious but then we get to see, or I, I was I was excited because I was like, yes, we're going to get to see my favorite set in the whole show, Susan's cool-ass apartment. But that uh, excitement was immediately turned to dread when she trips over uh, Chloe's pregnant ass on the floor. <laughs> Chloe's back, and she looks uh, real busted and pregnant. Uh, we knew she was pregnant when she left last time, but now she's very pregnant, and it has not been looks like it was not a fun trip to texas for chloe but we will come back to that in a second but for now we have carter who's at a very fancy house party and i initially thought like oh this is where we get introduced to the concept that carter's totally loaded like we have alluded to it in the past when he's helped susan out but i thought this was gonna be like the first time we meet like carter's family but no let's listen in and see whose house it is Let's go to the kitchen. I really didn't care about the patient. I just wanted the procedure. By tomorrow, everybody will forget. I won't. I'm quitting. You can't quit. Sure I can. Deb, listen. You're smart, and you learn fast. What's that got to do with taking care of people? You're going to be a great doctor. I don't really like it. I know that's not completely true. I like the science of it. But the patience, the sickness, I, sometimes it almost scares me. Scared the hell out of me. When I was a kid, my older brother was really sick, in and out of the hospital. But when I saw how the doctors treated him and how they treated me, I knew that this was what I wanted to do. See, that's the difference, John. You think about treating patients. You take the time to talk to them. You listen to them. You care. So what are you going to do? Join the party. My parents' wedding anniversary. I'll wait to tell my folks afterwards. Mother will throw up. Should be fun. So now we know that Chen's family is loaded too. There's a lot to unpack here. Just yeah. quite a bit. First of all, I want to give all of the credit in the world again to Carter for the understated comedic ability to make me laugh without saying a single word. Just the amount of hors d'oeuvres that he manages to take in one, like he spoke to me on a spiritual level there. 
where <laughs> he just kept going back for more hors d'oeuvres. And, and stuffing them in his pocket, too. Yeah. Which is funny. Which is just just incredible, and I'm I'm so here for that. But also the way he carries himself in this, it starts to hint at us that he's used to being in these situations. Because he just very, like, he just, he, he kind of lifts himself up and he very nonchalantly goes for everything and just like, mm-hmm. like, no, like, no, I'm not going to worry about what the server is thinking of me. Like, I know that's not how Carter would actually view it, but like, behaviorally, he's just like, yeah, of course I'm going to take six orders. It's muscle memory. Yeah. He's probably been a little kid at a thousand of these parties and is just like, that's what a kid in a situation like that would do is, you know, take a shitload of the free food. Right. I like that we get a lot of like establishment here. Like we, we establish uh, Carter's brother here, which is a little mm-hmm. like that's a little nugget that like won't get followed up on for quite a while. But we do like establish that here. This is this this right here is why Carter and Deb's relationship is one of my favorite in the whole show. And I think it's a very underrated one. You know, they're they have this incredible sort of like. Like, I don't even know what you would call it, but just like they're on they're on the same level on the same wavelength. And it really gets, you know, hammered home more when she comes back, because, you know, as we mentioned before, like this is it for Deb. Like she's not coming back after this until season six. And Mm -hmm. when she comes back in season six, she is almost a different character. You know, she's no longer Deb. She's now Jing Mei, except to Carter where Carter still calls her Deb as a kind of, you know, it's a, an affectionate thing. He affectionately refers to her as Deb. And I like that. There's never, there's never a hint of any sort of like romantic pursuit between them. They are just, they are friends. They are equals. They are always, one is never portrayed as better or worse than the other. And it just makes me like appreciate this, relationship between the two of them so much more like i think it's one of the most underrated pairings in the entire show yes i miss her already i know but she'll be back i know it's just gonna be a while but she will be back tune in a couple of years from now when we finally get to season six <laughs> now that she's in the mcu we can like it because she's on wait isn't she on shield yep yeah so, which yeah. is technically not real it's it's a weird separate kind of sort of Thing I'm calling it. I'm, I'm calling it canon. Now that she's in the MCU, we can we can put the little disclaimer at the end of the episode that Deb Chen will return. Baby, come back. So, oh, that's so sad considering what we switched to. Because you said baby come back and Mark's in the lounge all by himself and oh. it's sad. So Mark is sitting in the lounge in the dark all by himself, and Lydia comes in. So you've got visitors. And Mark walks out, and Mrs. Salazar has come in with her entire family, and Mark goes up to greet them and, like, get them situated, and he immediately picks up this little girl who's been the sick one, and, like, he should be masking them right away if they have TB. He should not be carrying around this little infected (laughs) germ bomb. It's because he low-key has a death wish. He wishes he were dead. But still, so, like... He should be masking them right away, and instead he's like, "Oh, you little, you little guys, you got the suitcases all right," and just picks up this little girl and goes to lead them to their quarantine room. So I, I actually think that this is a really, really good portrayal for Mark in this episode of kind of the, 
for lack of a better word, like the griefing, the, the grieving process, like his, the way that he is trying to move forward from, you know, what has happened. And it's not a linear process. Like, it's not just like he feels bad until he feels better. Like you see throughout just the course of this episode, all of the sort of twists and turns and peaks and valleys of this process for him. Like he starts out the episode still very, you know, hesitant, very unsure of himself. And then he goes through the whole, you know, conference thing, you know, the, the, the trepidation surrounding that where he kind of takes it out on the patient. So we see the anger kind of coming out. Then he gets into the conference thing and he sort of throws it back in Swift's face where he's like, no man, fuck you. Like, is this supposed to make me feel better? Like, fuck you. Like, and, and if you disagree with me from here on out, don't do it in front of the patient. Like he stands up for himself. And so we think, okay, cool. Badass Mark is back. Like he's, he's good now. Right. And then we see like a little bit later, he puts himself out there to Jennifer after, you know, the events of the previous episode or one or two episodes ago where she met him on the train platform and they had that nice moment. He tries to like build off of that and he gets shut down. And so we like, we see him again, kind of unsure of himself. And so it's this, and now we, we are seeing again with this, him taking a more hopeful approach. Like the thing that came from the beginning of the episode where it was, I don't care if she leaves, if she leaves, who gives a shit? It doesn't matter to me. Well, you know, his faith was rewarded. The patient does come back. She does bring the rest of her family and he throws himself back into his work again. And I just think it's like a really good bit of characterization and good bit of character work that we see that like, this is not going to be this like smooth linear process for Mark to get over this, that there'll be times where it gets worse before it gets better. And then there'll be other times where he, the old Mark that we know and love is still in there. And I just think it's really, really well told. Emotional recovery is not anywhere near a straight line. Yeah. I think they do this beautifully. And I think you illustrate a lot of really good points with that. So to wrap up the episode, uh, we go back and check with Susan and Chloe, who (laughs) Chloe has clearly learned nothing. She's smoking at Susan's dining room table. Susan also, again, not really objecting to this, which I still find strange. Like, I feel like in 1995, it should have been accepted enough medical knowledge to be like, hey, don't smoke when you're pregnant. But it's just me. I feel like it's Susan just not giving a shit. Yeah, maybe that's... At this point, like, so being like, okay, she's clearly had a fucking really rough time. Yeah, Chloe gonna Chloe. But uh, we find out from Chloe that Ronnie sold all of her things. Um, Susan's trying to make the best of the situation by uh, making Chloe ramen and a big glass of milk for dinner, which sounds fucking disgusting as a combination talking about all of Chloe's exes and how trash they all are. And Chloe actually admitting that Susan was right about most of them. The jacket, nice little bit of continuity. Uh, The jacket that Susan gave Chloe before she left for Texas uh, is still with her. However, a kid that she hitched a ride with his family has puked all over it. So the coat is pretty much ruined. Yeah. Uh, We find out that she has not seen a doctor recently about the baby. So that doesn't seem, does not seem good. And just a little note on the prop work here. That is a real bad prosthetic stomach she's got there. Like, you can see it moving when they sit down and they're, like, rubbing the belly. Yeah, that was really... I was Unsettling. Like, yeah, I was like, oh, this is supposed to be a sweet, tender moment. Why is her entire stomach shifting from side to side? Yeah, it's not great. Like, it's, it's not their best work in the props department. Also, I've been doing some Google... 
And it looks like it was really the late 90s that this, the push to discourage smoking during pregnancy really? started. Really? That late, yeah. huh? That's incredible. Yeah. I feel like that should have been a thing from, like, the early 80s, at least. But Yeah, no. Like, they, they had started to discover a lot of the stuff was linked to it, but it was really the late 90s that they began to really push. So, yeah, just just to wrap up, we find Susan once again in the caretaker role of the flaming hot mess that is Chloe. And that's where we leave it. I like this one a lot. There's some really, really, really good beats in here. Some really fucking weird ones, but and I'm gonna miss the fuck out of Chen, but Yeah. It's it's a solid like C plus B minus for me. Like it's I the stuff that it does well, I think it does really well. Like the stuff I mentioned before with Mark's characterization, I think that is kind of the for me that's the strongest through line in this episode. But I also was a fan of some of the things Benton was able to do, especially early on when it came to Mama Benton. Kind of getting to see that more human side of him was good. And then, yeah, losing Chen. I, I mean, I think the strongest bit of that, though, was the end of it. Everything that came before it, I kind of hated. But that little moment that him, that Chen and Carter had there at the end, I really, really enjoyed that. It definitely paid off. But yeah, I'd give it a B. It was fine. It flowed nicely. There were enough good character building moments in it that really helped move us towards the end of the season and yeah i thought it was i thought it was perfectly enjoyable not one of the big hitters that we've had but it definitely we've had much worse yeah Yeah, because we really are getting into the end game of season one at a bunch of these storylines so it's interesting to see how they're going to wrap up over the next what three three, four episodes four yeah four episodes so we're we're getting there we're trucking right along stick with us gang oh boy we've made it this far all right. Well, that's going to about wrap up our episode for today. Thank you all very much for listening, as always. You can find us on social media. We are on Twitter. Uh, we are at SetTheToneER. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast, And we are at Podcast on Instagram. You can also support us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Podcast. You can help your fellow patrons unlock bonus shows, including a special season recap episode, which will be, yeah, like we said, four more episodes in the season. Then we'll... Should have that uh, recorded for you shortly after. And then also a monthly bonus show where we talk about whatever's going on for us at the moment. Uh, Different news, current events, video games we're playing, movies we've seen. Just different fun stuff like that. Um, We also, for all of our patrons now, we now have access to our little peek behind the scenes, access to our show notes. So all subscribers at Patreon, even at the $1 level, will get access to that right away. So just different things we can do to provide you a little bit more entertainment value for your dollar. Uh, our theme music, as always, is provided by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. And Daniel, where can folks find you at? They can find me on Instagram at dan.u, that is Y-O-U dot E-L. You can also find me on my other podcast, The Popular Court, with my co-host Jake Terrell, uh, where we do a different pop culture topic each week and uh, do a little mock trial on it. Not 100% sure where we are in our release schedule at the moment, so um, go back and listen to one of our older episodes. Um, Maybe we've done ones on things like, say, Mario, 3D versus 2D, Uh, Luigi, if you're more of a Luigi fan, Donkey Kong. We've pretty much taken care of most of the Nintendo family at this point. I think we've done one on just about every corner of the Mushroom Kingdom, so go check one of those out. All right, and Lauren, where can folks find you at? Folks can find me wildly promoting the popular court YouTube Let's Plays on my Twitter <laughs> at lobob92345 because Daniel's co-host Jake makes my Monday mornings bearable. 
And you can find me on Twitter. I am at RandomGamer. That's J-A-M-3-R. Uh, thank you again, everyone, very much for listening. Please join us again next week for episode number 22, and have a great week.